Hello, my name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with Michael Zarling for episode 24 of our Thirsty Podcast. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Today we are going to have a whole lot of Peter. Uh, we'll have chapters 4 and 5 of his first letter, and then uh, all of, all three chapters of his second letter, Second Peter. And uh, we'll begin this morning with 1 Peter 4. Well, I don't know when you listen to this, but we're recording it somewhat in the morning time. Um, 1 Peter 4. And uh, just to get us back into the swing of things, it's, it's my favorite section of Scripture, the verses that came just before this. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, where it talks about Christ suffering once for sins in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, uh, you've got that... Uh, distinction between flesh and spirit. The um, flesh is the unbelieving self, or for Jesus, his flesh would be his form of weakness or mortality. And uh, then you've got the talk about um, descending into hell and preaching to the spirits in prison and that wonderful passage that tells us baptism saves you just like uh, the water of the flood saved every all eight people in the ark. Uh, and now because of that, Jesus has full dominion and power and authority over Satan and his demons. And uh, that's that's what Peter then uses to launch into chapter 4, uh, do not join in immorality. And then as he talks about not joining in immorality, he says in verses 3 and 4, uh, he talks about their past and what they're like now. Indeed, you have already spent enough time in the past doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in unbridled immorality, lusts, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and disgusting idolatry. For this reason, they are surprised that you do not plunge into the same overflowing river of filth with them, and they slander you. So, Jeremy, why do unbelievers think it's strange that we don't join in with them? Uh, I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is because it's so much fun. Um, it, they don't do things that are sinful because they're they're painful. They do things that are sinful because they are enjoyable, at least uh, in the short in the short term. Yeah, they don't understand us. They don't understand uh, the change that has come over us that Peter mentions. And though they won't admit it, their conscience bothers them. Uh, it's threatening to take away their pleasures. And we in this podcast, I like to talk a lot about the culture. And it isn't enough that in our culture that people want us to tolerate their immorality, sexuality, and sensuality. They want complete acceptance. So that's different. Toleration comes first and then acceptance. And if we do not, as Christians, accept and promote them, then we're slandered as close-minded bigots. And there I think of some of the young couples I've married the last couple of years. They talk about the pressure they receive from their co-workers, their friends, and even their own family members because they are not living together before marriage. You know, the, the culture is telling them to, you know, to live together in immorality and their morality is completely foreign in our culture. And Peter describes it kind of like a bridle that you put on a horse to control it. An unbridled horse is 
wild and free. And that sounds good until you realize that wild horses, without someone to put a bridle on them to care for them, feed them, brush them, comb them, then those horses become disease-ridden because they don't have access to a, a vet, uh, injure their hoof, they get cuts and bruises, burrs and burdocks. And the same is true with people who do not put a bridle on their sinful nature. But a follow-up question with that is, would you say, Jeremy, that we are living in an immoral society or an amoral society? <laughs> yeah, I, I get what you're driving at there. And I think maybe the distinction is, Immoral means that we know a difference between right and wrong, and we just, uh, uh, as a society, disregard it or choose not to follow it. And amoral would be more like we, uh, we're not even aware of a difference between right and wrong. Is that kind of... Yeah. You know, years ago, you had a puritanical society, a puritanical as far as morals. They wanted everything to be moral. But now it's the opposite. I think we're living in a puritanical, amoral society. And that's what Peter's getting at. And I see in our culture is that when you and I as Christians do not join with the immorality or the amorality, then we're slandered. Immorality would be, uh, yeah, like you said, they know right and wrong, and they just choose to do wrong. Amoral, they have no concept of right or wrong, and then they're going to do what their sinful nature wants them to do, like an unbridled horse. When you brought up the uh, couples living together uh, before marriage, that is actually a great example of amor- amorality, because uh, at least in my experience, I don't know if you found the same thing, uh, it's, it's like shocking for couples to find out that uh, we're not supposed to do that. That's that's bad. That's not a good thing. And uh, they they actually a, a lot of times that's so expected that uh, they don't even realize that there's a right and a wrong way to get married. Right. Um, the uh, chapter four. Uh, I, I guess I just wanted to add that um, I, I really love the way that Peter gently and and lovingly corrects some misguided notions here uh, when he says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what the Gentiles want to do. He doesn't scold. He doesn't berate or say, uh, now knock it off, you you bunch of ingrates. Um, And I think the way that this shows itself, maybe the temptation that Peter is trying to head off here in our our day with, with Christians is that we think, well, it's a good thing when we can relate to unbelievers and, and when we can, you know, um, uh, maybe it's a good thing if we would, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, try out drugs or drink. I, I've got just really pedantic examples there, but like whatever, whatever it is, like, it, uh, you know, spouting off four letter words, it, it's a good thing if, if we can show unbelievers that we relate to them. And Peter's very gently and evangelically here saying, no, you've spent enough, you, you already have enough fodder. You've got enough material to relate to unbelievers. You've spent enough time in the past um, trying to uh, do what the Gentiles do. Uh, now you can live for holiness. 
And then he talks about loving for others and gifts meant for service. But I want to focus on the last few verses on sharing in the sufferings for Christ. And he says in verse 12, Do not be surprised, dear friends, by the fiery trial that's happening among you to test you, as if something strange was happening to you. He's saying there that persecution is the norm for God's people, not the exception. What we have experienced in America for the last couple of hundred years, that is the exception of religious freedom. Now persecution is coming back. So another story of persecution, uh, Pastor Jim Stevens of Fairview Baptist Church in Alberta, Canada, was arrested in front of his family on Monday, a week after the government seized his church building and forced his congregation to worship underground. So get this, last Sunday, a police helicopter was hovering overhead and discovered Stevens and his congregation meeting secretly in a new location. So they didn't arrest him there. Instead, they waited till he went home, and then they arrested him in front of his wife and little children. Uh, and I know over the course of these thirsty episodes, uh, I have highlighted examples of suffering that's coming on Christians in the Western world. And we are beginning to experience the persecution that Peter and his audience felt in the first century and the persecution that's been felt in Christians elsewhere for millennia. But take comfort in this, in that as governments and people in our culture are pounding on us, what happens to the Christian church? It grows. These churches that I've mentioned over the last few episodes, like uh this one at Fairview Baptist Church in Alberta, they're actually growing as they are meeting secretly to avoid government persecution. And it's funny how tyrannical leaders never seem to understand how God grows his Christian church more when it's being harassed. In, uh, in, in chapter four, the only other point I wanted to make was, uh, having to do with verse 11 and, uh, that says, if anyone speaks, let him do it as one speaking the messages of God. Um, and I think that uh, that is such an important thing to remember. Uh, I, I can recall a meeting I was in one time of uh, pastors that uh, we were discussing. It was, uh, we were discussing, there was some term, and I'm not going to be able to remember what the term was. I was racking my brain, uh, but it's not coming to me. And uh, I'm going to just say, it was something like um, evangelistic. It, it was it was some kind of thing from from evangelical, uh, not not Lutheran evangelical, but um, uh, Reformed Protestant evangelical type of uh, circles where there was this word that was being used, and sometimes there were Wisconsin Synod pastors that would use it too. And uh, our Conference of Presidents sent out uh, a memo. I don't know if you remember this, but they just sent out a memo uh, to the pastors of the Synod saying that uh, it, would be a it wouldn't be a bad idea if you just didn't use this word, whatever that word was. And it wasn't that they were saying it's wrong, you shouldn't use it. It was just saying, maybe let's get out of the habit of using it. And this one, uh, this one pastor at the meeting said, uh, doesn't the Conference of Presidents have better things to do than uh, to dictate whether we, um, uh, you know, what words we use? And I think I see where he's coming from. Uh, and at the same time, uh, this verse 11 here shows you it is important 
the what words we speak that they 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 are used in contexts they are used uh by certain teachers uh that are that have a different agenda than what we have and um it's not a bad thing to ask yourself when i'm speaking am i using words that are directly derived from the bible uh or am i using words that are derived from teachers of the Bible that may or may not be making a mistake. And the last thing I wanted to bring up with uh, chapter four here too, is Peter talks about suffering. He's writing to Christians, probably in Rome, that are suffering persecution. And he's, these are strange concepts here. He says, rejoice when you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, verse 13. Verse 14, if you're insulted in connection with the name of Christ, you're blessed. Verse 19, so let those who suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to their faithful creator while doing what's good. So what he's saying there is, uh, yeah, sufferings are a pain and you're not going to enjoy sufferings, but rather you rejoice in the sufferings because they are connected, uh, connecting you with Christ. And uh, also, I think it's important to remember that he who has eternal glory in his future can endure suffering for the next few minutes. Okay, let that sink in. You and I as Christians, we have an eternity of glory waiting for us. This lifetime of 70 to 80 years, it's really a blink of an eye in the terms of eternity. We can endure whatever we're going through because we have eternity waiting for us through what Christ accomplished for us. And Peter's going to say more about that in uh, some upcoming verses, or maybe it's his second letter where he says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Um, As we jump into chapter five, first of all, I think it's important uh, for the casual reader of the Bible to understand that the word elder uh, really means something closer to what we would say is pastor of of your church. Um, I know that in a lot of our congregational structures, there's a board of elders, uh, there's spiritual overseers who are laymen. Um, but, uh, in this case, Peter really means the, uh, elder who is the, the pastor of the church. And the word elder doesn't necessarily mean, have to mean, uh, I, I just think of, uh, the new pastor at first Evan, uh, pastor day is a seminary graduate. He's a very young man. Um, and yet we would call him an elder. It doesn't have to do with his biological age. It has to do with his spiritual maturity. And that's, that's what the word elder has in mind. Um, the, Pastor Zarling, I'm going to toss one back to you and uh, ask you about titles of pastors, okay. because um, I know a lot of times there is uh, kind of an unspoken debate uh, between different types of pastors who have differing ministry, ministry styles that uh, sometimes they like to be called by their first name. And I'm serious about this. I have gone back and forth and really wrestled with this. Um, and Peter says here in verse three, do not lord it over those entrusted to your care. So, uh, teacher, is it lawful or not? <laughs> if I can borrow some sayings of the Pharisees and put, put you in the place of Jesus here, is it lawful or not for, uh, should, should, what do you think of calling your pastor pastor or calling your pastor by his first name? So I remember years ago when I was in Kentucky, 
uh, someone asking me that question. Should I call you by your first name? Do I call you uh, father, pastor, and, and so forth? And so what I told that person, and I, and I joke around with people now, is, you know, Pastor Zarling is fine, but I prefer Most High and Holy Pontiff of Racine. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that's a good question you know, that, you know, I grew up in a, in a time when you called them by the last name, and that was... Uh, and you called everyone Mr. Oh, and Mrs. that is, do not, uh, just everybody, if you're listening to this right now, if you call me Pastor Jer or Pastor Jeremy, that will sound to my ears like fingernails on yeah. a chalkboard. I, you, you can call me Jeremy, you can call me Jer, do not call me Pastor Jer. Yeah, and but it's a different culture that we're living in now. You know, my girls are very respectful, they'll call people by their uh, Mr. and Mrs. and the last name, and then older people will say, but call me by my first name. And I think pastors are trying to fit into that being Pastor Michael, Pastor Jer, uh, just to fit in with, with the culture. But, uh, you know, personally, I prefer just the last name. I think it just gives that more gravitas uh, because, you know, I, I think it too— you, you and I, we, we've worked hard, master's degree, eight years of school, to receive that title of reverend or pastor. So um, I, I think I've probably the best handling that I, I always forget this, but I, I did hear one time, uh, he's now the uh, president of our seminary, but uh, Pastor Earl Trepto, he said that he tells people when he was in the parish, he told people, um, just just call me pastor, then you'll know what to call the next guy. <laughs> there you go. And yeah, you talked about elder being uh, really pastor. So it's interesting that probably in almost any church constitution and bylaws, uh, when they have, like you said, the board of elders, they they go to First Peter 5 and elsewhere, and they quote these passages about elders that really isn't talking about a board of elders, it's talking about pastors. Yeah. yeah. And in our... Uh, district convention earlier this week, President Gurgel, who is the uh, president at Martin Luther College, where we train our pastors, teachers, and staff ministers, he brought up that after the assignments that were made in New Ulm and Mequon in May of 2021, there are still 95 pastoral vacancies and about 90 teaching vacancies. So I want to reiterate what he said is to encourage all of you to encourage your young people to become pastors and teachers. So brief story about Nick. So Nick was helping the last few years with our soccer camp that we hold in our congregation at our Caledonia campus. And one of the moms who was helping out said to me, hey, Pastor, you notice that Nick is really good with kids? And I said, he is. So I went and I talked to Nick and I said, Hey, Nick, we noticed that you're really good with kids. And he said, I know. <laughs> he said, well, at least you're humble too. I said, what are you planning on doing? He said, I don't know, maybe going to the trades or something. I said, have you ever thought about being a teacher? He said, no, nah, not really. I said, you know, I know you're really good at math. We need math teachers and we need people in the trades. And so from that one simple conversation, uh, by God's grace, Nick is enrolled to go and be a FIED teacher, not even what we talked about, but to be a FIED teacher, probably teaching math also at Martin Luther College. 
And I always tell our people when we do evangelism, like we're, we're doing door canvassing tomorrow, is God always blesses the effort. He doesn't always bless that specific effort with, you know, people joining our church all of a sudden because we put flyers on the door. But because we do the door hanging, someone always ends up coming to our church. God blesses a effort, but not that specific effort. And what's interesting that of doing this soccer camp for 10 years, I don't know of any family that has joined our church from that. But from doing that soccer camp for 10 years, Lord willing, we have gained another teacher for God's kingdom. So I heard the uh, analogy once of uh, it's like you're fishing off the front of the boat and God is throwing fish in through the back of the boat. Yeah, that's a good analogy too. Um, and I'm, I'm going to use what you just said about Nick. And, and I know you kind of said it in an offhand joking way, but it really makes a nice explanation for the upcoming verses about humility. And uh, I, I know you said it tongue in cheek when you said, oh, he's really humble. When he, After what did he do? He said, uh, you said, you're really good with kids. And he said, I know. And I, the point I want to make is that I think a lot of times people think humility means that you degrade yourself or you talk down or talk bad about yourself. And that's just not true. Um, humility in the Bible really means uh, to think think to have yourself less on your mind. So if you're talking bad about yourself, you're still putting yourself in, into your thoughts um, and, uh, and having a, you know, having a sober minded awareness of his ability with kids, uh, it, it could be arrogance, but it's not necessarily, it could just be that he does know that he is good with kids. And the reason I bring this up is because of verses six and seven. I think uh, a lot of people know verse seven very well, and it's a beautiful verse, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, um, but uh, what uh, a lot of people don't realize is that that actually, what I just said is a command, cast, throw the anxiety on God. Um, in the Greek language, that's not a command. It's actually a participle that you can translate it as a command, but it, it really would more come across more clearly in our language to say casting all your anxiety on him because it goes back to and attaches to the real command word is at the beginning of verse six. What does that say? Therefore, humble yourselves. Yeah, that's the actual command word in Greek is humble yourselves. And uh, that is so interesting that when you think about humbling yourself as I will, I will think less about myself and more about other people. I don't have to think bad about myself or, or overinflated good about myself. I just won't think of myself as much. That's humbling yourself. And the crazy thing that happens when you do that is verse 7. You, you have a lot less anxiety. What does most anxiety come from? It comes from fixating and obsessing on yourself and your own problems and, and your own internal struggles. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, uh, Jeremy, if as a pastor, if uh, you ever get stressed out, the things aren't going quite right in the ministry. All the time, All every the time. week. Yeah. And yet, as you're talking about this, the one thing I wanted to bring up with humility in the ministry is Luther's sacristy prayer. Hmm. 
So the sacristy is the holy place where the pastor gets ready, the, the ladies of the altar guild get everything ready for communion and so forth. We just redid our sacristy here at Water of Life, and we hung up Luther's sacristy prayer. So this is a prayer that I'm able to see and pray right before I go out uh, for the invocation or the sermon later on. Uh, Luther wrote, Lord God, you have appointed me as a bishop and pastor in your church. But you see how unsuited I am to meet so great and difficult a task. If I had lacked your help, I would have ruined everything long ago. Therefore, I call upon you. I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you. I shall teach the people. I myself will learn and ponder diligently upon your word. Use me as your instrument, but do not forsake me. For if I ever should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. Amen. And I think that fits perfectly with what we were talking about with verses 6 and 7. Uh, beyond that, the uh, other things I wanted to mention in chapter 5 are just the warning that Peter gives about the devil. Um, he is he and his minions, the demons, are not anything that you want to uh, uh, trifle with or to um, become engrossed in, uh, but yet you do need to be aware that they are there. And, and he says uh, to resist him and be alert. Um, and then uh, at the end of the book, uh, Peter makes a reference to she who is in Babylon. Um, this makes me think of the book of Revelation and uh, how there is the church, the, the bride of Christ that uh, gives birth to uh, the Christ child and then uh, is carried out into the desert on the two wings of an angel so she can escape from the dragon. And then there's the anti-church, Babylon, the prostitute, the uh, uh, the unfaithful wife of Christ. Um, and uh, here, it, it would seem that Peter is using code language for the city of Rome. Right. And the last thing I want to say on this chapter is uh, what you picked up with the adversary, the devil, that when we go through suffering, again, Peter talks about suffering a lot. Uh, when we go through suffering, it often seems like we go it alone. And Satan wants us to believe that because then we're easier prey. He can pick us off from the back of the pack like a, a lion or a cheetah does that. Well, how does Peter encourage, encourage us? He encouraged us by not being alone. Uh, Christians throughout the world are going through the same kind of suffering. And again, he implies that this is all a part of the normal part of confessing our faith in Jesus. And that's why I want to encourage all of you to return to in-person worship in your church. Uh, that for a time, I think it was necessary to be a part and watch it online. But now it seems is the time and pray about it. Uh, talk to others about it. But my encouragement is to be back in church. I talked to a number of people yesterday while I was watching my daughter's soccer practice, inviting them to, well, this Sunday is going to be the last Sunday of Epiphany and New Hope as we have merged to become Water of Life. Uh, and I invited them to these special services and they said, yeah, we're coming back. And they said, we miss it. They miss, uh, they're still hearing God's word and they're hopefully singing the hymns online, but they're not with God's people. They're not praying with God's people. They're not uh, hearing the laments of God's people. They're not receiving the sacrament together 
kneeling next to each other. And that's so vitally important as we need each other to be able to work together to resist our adversary, the devil. Uh, Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love. So uh, would you also encourage us to start doing that a little more often? Especially your spouse. Ah, there you go. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Um, just what I'm recalling off the top of my head from uh, when we went through this in our, our seminary classes is that First Peter, if you're, I, I'm not a, I know Greek, but I'm not a Greek expert by any means. Uh, but people who are Greek experts have said that First Peter seems very well polished. Uh, it seems like he probably had some help uh, as a you know Aramaic speaking Jew. Uh, that Greek wasn't his first language, and so it seems like he had some help with writing the grammar uh, so that it so that it sounded very nice and and uh, uh, proper as far as Greek speaking goes. Second Peter, uh, Greek experts will say, sounds a lot more like Peter just sort of threw himself at it. And that doesn't make it any less inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, In fact, this is one of those books that tells us uh, that God's Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit in one of the most beautiful passages about that. Um, But uh, it seems more a little uh, rough around the edges as far as the grammar goes. And, uh, and, And Peter is really maybe in a lot of ways getting more emotional than he was in First Peter. He's uh, talking about the false prophets and what harmful destruction they will bring and about the uh, day of judgment and how catastrophic that will be. So uh, let's jump into Second Peter. Right, Second Peter, uh, he says in verse 4, uh, through these he has given us his precious and great promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature. Ooh. You know, sharing in the divine nature. What does that mean? Well, it likely refers to the new self that the Holy Spirit creates in a believer by the call to faith. Uh, while we were preparing to record today, we were just discussing how Peter talks in Second Peter about being dead and alive, uh, sharing in the nature of Christ. Uh, we really think that's you know being dead to sin and then alive with a new nature. So Paul is playing on that, that we are now renewed in our image of God, created to be like God in righteousness and true holiness, like Paul says in Ephesians and Colossians. And that really shouldn't come as anything shocking. It surprises me a little bit whenever I read that, uh, that I get to share in the divine nature, uh, but uh, this is what this is this is why Jesus gives us His body and blood in communion for one thing. Uh, but this is also what we do when we call each other Christians, and the Book of Acts tells us that uh, believers were called Christians first in the city of Antioch. Uh, what does Christian mean? It means little Christ, uh, a little yet another person who shares in the divine nature. And then <clears throat> verses. 5 through 8, Peter talks about the total commitment that is required of Christians as they keep on increasing in the seven qualities that God wants them to add to their faith. Uh, And I don't know, Jeremy, have you heard people say to you, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious? I've certainly seen that on bumper stickers. Yeah. Well, what what do they mean by that? Well, they mean... Really, they just don't want to go to church. 
They don't want to get caught up in the uh, humdrum routine of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but their concepts, and if you hear people say that, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious, you need to challenge them on that. Uh, because these verses, verses five through eight, fly in the face of being spiritual but not religious. Because when people say that, they're just making their own religion. Uh, they're making their own things of what they want to do. You know, they don't want to go to church. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't really want to pray. They want to do their own thing, and they make their own rules. Peter lays out what you really need to do to be a Christian. And uh, what he's saying is, you need to share in the religion of Christ that's been handed down and believed by countless generations. Uh, they are not a religion of one. And, and then he goes on too, is it takes total commitment to believe and put into practice these seven Christian qualities. Otherwise, otherwise you're just sitting around being idle and unfruitful, Peter says. Yeah, there's always room for improvement. Um, when we call ourselves little Christs or we say we share in the divine nature, that is a fact. That is a reality. It's not some incremental uh, growth toward justification. No, your sins are completely and totally forgiven. Heaven is yours. Um, and now you still have life on this earth for however long God gives you. Well, as long as God gives you, you can keep adding uh, uh, moral excellence to uh, knowledge to moral excellence and self-control to knowledge. And uh, there, there are all kinds of things uh, that you can uh, keep challenging yourself with uh, as you grow into this uh, new persona of little Christ. And then with that, of challenging yourself, what does it mean when he talks about uh, to make your election more sure for yourselves? Uh, it, yeah, I, I think the EHV did us a great service by uh, adding that for yourselves part. Um, not adding it, but translating it that way. Um, that uh, it, election is... Uh, absolutely rock solid. Nothing can be more certain than God's choice of you as uh, a saint to inherit eternal life. Um, but one thing that is wavering and uh, uh, unsettled is our own minds. And our own minds are constantly looking for certainty. And uh, while we know that there are the elect, um, we we have no direct word of God saying, thus and such a person is you know th this this individual is elect so how do you do that you you become more certain of it uh, in your own mind yeah we can't make our election more sure like oh god chose us from eternity that's election and now uh, you doing something makes that more sure i i liken it to my family with my four daughters they're my daughters no matter what you know they are mine they're zarling girls but they can make that more sure by acting like it. That's one of the things I used to teach them when we would go out in public, because is that your zarlings act like it. You know, there's a high standard, and that's what Peter is getting at here with your election. There is a high standard that you and I have as Christians. We need to live like that, and that makes our election sure. It reminds us of who we are. Uh, and what's the was the first thing that Peter does to strengthen the faith of his readers in verses 12 through 15? He says uh, a number of times, 
keep reminding you, uh, to keep you awake by reminding you. Uh, you always have a reminder of these things. He reminds his readers, you need to be in God's Word. And I think of a lady that I had in one of my first confirmation classes down in Kentucky. Uh, it was in lesson 10 of 16 lessons, and Lynn uh, had come from no Christian background at all. And so she finally asked me, well, pastor, how do I know that what you're teaching me is true? And I said, well, Lynn, because I said so. <laughs> and she, she chuckled like that. And I said, no, really, it's because I have taught you well enough how to read the Bible on your own. So that as you read the Bible, you can compare it to what I'm teaching you, what any other pastor in any other church is teaching you, and then you know for sure. And but you have to keep reminding yourself of these things. And that's what Paul or that's what Peter is saying here by uh, using that word remind so many times. The only way that you know for sure what's going on is be in God's word. Remind yourself again and again. And you could go on to the very next uh, set of verses. If if people wonder like Lynn, uh, well, why should I believe the Bible? Um, well, maybe I'm sorry. She didn't wonder that. She wondered why why should I believe what you're saying? And and you said because you know the Bible and you know how to handle it, uh, and you can compare it. Uh, but now, if somebody would go on to say, well, why should I believe the Bible? Um, first of all, don't say. <laughs> Because it's God's word, because you're, you're when you say that you're showing a misunderstanding of their question. Uh, they 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 do not necessarily accept that the Bible is God's word, uh, but you know what they will accept? They will accept what Peter says in the next set of verses. He says we we did not make this uh, stuff up like a bunch of uh, myths or fables. Um, these are actual things that happened in a historic way, and we have an eyewitness account of them. We saw them, and we wrote them down. We are normal blue-collar, uh, white-collar workers like you, uh, and uh, the fact that they lived 2,000 years ago shouldn't make it any less of a, a, a historically testified document. Um, and what he says is that we are the apostles who... Uh, Jesus picked as his eyewitnesses to see that he would die and then come back from the dead. And that is why uh, you can trust that his word is the word of God. Right. So Peter says, uh, we were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. When did he, when do we see that majesty? He says, uh, when the voice came to him from within the majestic glory. So he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. When God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then he goes on to verse 19 saying, we have the completely reliable prophetic word of God. All you and all people who want to challenge God's word have to do is just look in the Old Testament, see how the prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. Hundreds of years, they were written hundreds of years before his birth. And then he and then he did exactly what they said he would do in in ways that you cannot manipulate. Right. So, for example, I'm preaching on Isaiah nine verses one and two for this Sunday, and it talks about uh, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Israel, the nation of Israel being taken away into captivity, and yet a light would shine in the land 
of the Gentiles. Well, the light that would shine would be 700 years later, be Jesus. And where does he do his ministry, the bulk of it? In the land of Galilee of the Gentiles. Just one example, uh, the sure and reliable prophetic word of God. So, Jeremy, how do you teach divine inspiration to your students? Because that's what Peter's talking about in the last few verses. Uh, well, two passages come to mind, uh, and one of them is the made up, well, it's not made up, but it's it's a word that is not otherwise in the Greek language, God breathed. Uh, that, uh, But the idea is that just like you would have different instruments, wind instruments, trumpets, flutes, uh, uh, saxophones, and a, a very gifted musician could breathe into any of those instruments, and it's still the same musician playing the music, um, but it sounds a little bit different with each instrument. That's how uh, God describes inspiration with the apostles and the New Testament writers. Um, but here, uh, I'm glad you asked that because uh, verse 21 uh, talks about men speaking from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think this is the verse that uh, in the Greek language is also used for ships uh, sailing on the sea, that they're, how is the ship carried along in, in Peter's day? It would be by uh, wind power. The, the wind blows into the sail and carries the ship across the surface of the water. And uh, that's here what God does with uh, his divine inspired writers, he breathes, he breathes into their sails and carries them in a direction that he wants them to go. Anything else you want to bring up in chapter one? Let's move on. All right. Then he goes on to chapter two, and he's talking about uh, the warning of the false teachers. And Verse 1 is interesting in that he says, There were false prophets also among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then he, so what he's saying there, and I find interesting, is even though they're denying Christ, he is the master who bought them. Mm -hmm. you know, still, though they refuse to be uh, set free, they still are holding on to the devil. They're running back to the devil as the slave master, but Jesus has already set them free. He bought them. But that swift destruction that they bring on themselves, and he goes on to say, many will follow their depraved ways. Uh, in their greed, they will exploit you with fabricated messages. Uh, their condemnation announced long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So uh, there is a commercial that's showing up now on Hulu for an AIDS treatment. It's definitely directed toward gay men. And there's a gay couple talking. One of them addresses the audience saying, this product is not for those who were assigned female at birth. So in one commercial, they're promoting this destructive activity. They're combining confusion about sexual morality as they promote homosexuality and gender confusion uh, as they talk about those who have attempt, attempted their God to change their God-given gender at birth. And then to talk about that too, in the culture, if any of you have young children, you got to watch out for these things on Nickelodeon and Disney and so forth. For example, 
Drag queen Nina West was on Nickelodeon singing about the colors of the rainbow flag for LGBTQ. Uh, Blues Clues, which was one of my girls' favorite shows growing up. They had a drag queen holding a microphone with a Revolutionary Fist logo on it, singing about the wonders of gay and non-binary parents, trans families, uh, and ace, bi, and pan grown-ups. Disney has a new show called Loki that debuted last Wednesday on Disney+. Plus. My girls and I watched it. Uh, but it features a gender-fluid Norse god of mischief. Uh, what, what are these places doing? Are these companies doing? They're targeting our young children and young adults, and they're brainwashing them with this ideological amorality like we talked about. Uh, they are promoting unrestrained immorality like Peter mentions in the coming verses, the same kind of unrestrained immorality that was there in Noah's day and Sodom and Gomorrah. And Peter says, if God did not spare the angels when they rebelled against the Lord, then God will also not spare those who are created in his image, who tossed aside that image to play, al- to play around in the devil's playground. One thing that uh, struck me as I listened to this chapter uh, or or read it ahead of time is that uh, in verse 3, Peter talks about the false teachers who will exploit you with fabricated messages. And uh, I think the translation that I was listening to said something like made up stories or something like that uh, for fabricated messages here. And uh, what struck me is that Peter then goes on to um, offer some positive examples of how there are true stories that you don't need to go chasing after the fabricated messages because there are true stories that make the points that God wants you to hear just just as well. And then he launches into, uh, this can kind of just be a summary for the chapter, uh, how uh, there is Noah and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he talks about um, Balaam and Balak, uh, the, the donkey that talked. Um, and and uh, all sorts of things, references to the Old Testament that um, uh, show some good examples of the, the true stories that can build up your faith. And when he talks about Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah, he says in verse 7, And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, who was very distressed by the unrestrained immorality of the weak, wicked people. Uh, what do you think about that, Jeremy, of... Uh, what lesson can we learn from Lot that he lived uh, in in a city that was filled with unrestrained immorality and yet he was very distressed? Uh, I think that can be very reassuring for people today, especially when you hear what all those things that you just read about uh, uh, Disney and uh, Nickelodeon and Blues Clues, um, that uh, we, we too, we we can say that uh, we, we feel Lot's pain and, uh, and that at the same time, what happened with Lot? Um, God didn't uh, condemn him for choosing what he did. He probably, he probably would have done better to let Abraham choose the floodplain with the, all the lush growth, um, but uh, it ended up working better for Abram. And uh, even though Lot chose the, the better area to live in, um, 
and and that was a corrupt area, uh, morally speaking, uh, God did not say, shame on you. He did eventually say, you need to get out of here and sent angels to, to do that. Um, but uh, it just reminds me of Jesus saying that uh, we, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Yeah, because it goes on to say that he was tormented in his righteous soul day after day by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And he showed that uh, in Sodom by not wanting uh, the two angels that were uh, disguised as regular men to sleep outside because he knew what would happen to them. And uh, that's when the angels uh, cursed all the men that were outside Lot's house with blindness. But the difficulty is what happens when you live in that culture and you become desensitized to it. So in application, I think you and I need to be careful about whom we associate for the very same reason. Because often such association results in our being tormented by similar temptations. Because we may be tormented by the culture around us that promotes what God so clearly classifies as immorality. And so you need to be careful with what your children watch. You need to watch it first. But my advice really is, just turn off the TV, uh, teach them to read a books, play with Legos, play board games, because what the culture is trying to do is win the hearts and minds of people. And who do they win? Not us. They try and work on our young people to win them over to the devil. And if, uh, you know, we let them, uh, if we are like Lot and live among the filth, well, don't think that that's not going to affect us and infect our children. I think that the uh, mentioning that Peter does of the tormenting in Lot's soul really shows that he still had a conscience, that it, it was it was plaguing him, it was bothering him. And I think that's a good sign that when the world around you torments and, and bothers you, uh, that's a good sign in, in your soul that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and that uh, you have a conscience that can uh, distinguish right from wrong. Anything else on chapter two? Uh, not unless you want to talk about uh, pigs in mud or dogs returning to vomit. Uh. That's not an image I really want to focus on right now. All right, now. we'll move on to chapter three. All right, what do you got on chapter three? Well, it sort of uh, sets the tone, not really sets the tone. It wraps up everything that Peter wrote in both of his letters, that in his mindset, uh, he really hits uh, a lot of themes, uh, four themes, really, that sort of, uh, I think of them as like pillars of world history. And uh, one of them is creation, uh, and all four of them are great cataclysmic universe-changing events. Uh, the first one is creation. It was a great cataclysmic, uh, uh, huge, huge upheaval of, it was creation of matter, and then the organization of it was a huge upheaval of matter. Uh, then come the, another one that Peter focuses on a lot is the flood. Uh, it was a huge upheaval of everything on earth. Um, and it changed the face of the world forever. Uh, the fourth one is uh, the last day, and that's what Peter's going to talk about now, the, the judgment and the destruction of the world, which is, yet again, Jesus describes as a huge cataclysmic event. The mountains are going to be running away. The stars are going to try to hide and can't, won't be able to. Uh, but the, fourth, the third one that I skipped over on purpose is uh, the coming of the Christ. 
that that also you 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 didn't see it visibly, but it radically altered the whole universe uh, when God took on flesh, and that is another of those four pillars that uh, Peter uh, focuses on a lot. And he says in verse five, you see what they, the false teachers, and everyone we talked about in the culture, what they are intentionally forgetting is that the heavens came into existence long ago. And so my encouragement to you uh, is when you get a chance, uh, go to sites like Answers in Genesis, which is not Wells, but listen to them. They're very good with their apologetics on creation, the flood, and so forth, and Lutheran science, which is uh, Wells-based. Uh, I'm hoping to take a class on Christian apologetics from Lutheran science and uh, Martin Luther College this summer. I probably have to sign up for it if I'm going to take it. But if you have the opportunity to go to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, I know uh, Jeremy's taking some students from Shoreland down there this summer. Uh, do that. It is a fantastic thing to do. Take your family, spend a couple of days. I always encourage people, go to the Creation Museum first. It was built first. It's smaller, a lot of science stuff. Then you're going to be wowed at the life-sized uh, Noah's Ark that's there and all of the animals that they have inside the Ark. Not real animals, but just the way they've got everything set up of how it actually would work that eight people could live inside of an ark with all of the different species of animals for over a year. Uh, because people are intentionally forgetting the, cre- the four things that you mentioned, Jeremy, they're forgetting those. And so it's good for us to be reminded of them so that we are then able to remind others. Uh the description that Peter gives of the last day is um, it, it truly catastrophic, cataclysmic. Um, it, it, the one that always gets me is uh, in in verse thir- no twelve um, when he talks about uh, the heavens to be set on fire and destroyed. That means outer space, uh, outer space. The planets, the stars, all of it uh, is set on fire and destroyed, and the elements will melt as they burn in the great with great heat. Um, so, when you read in First um, Thessalonians about Jesus catching us up into the air, uh, that you see why we need to be caught up into the air. Uh, things are going to be very hot here on this earth. Um, but it, it's because God is changing everything over. He is uh, recreating or, or creating new for the first time. However you want to think of it, uh, he, he, is, he is recreating his universe and, and it will be perfect, but it needs to be purged of uh, all the, the sin that is accumulated here. Yeah, that's what Paul says in Romans 8.21, that even creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption in order to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. So he destroyed everything once with water, and the second time he's going to destroy everything with fire. And I'm glad you mentioned Paul's letter to the Romans, because uh, the other neat thing about this ending of Peter's second letter is that you, you see how... Um, he sort of made up and, and uh, uh, resolved any differences he might have had with the Apostle Paul. Um, in Galatians, Paul had to Paul wrote about having to rebuke Peter and uh, 
scold him for his uh, practice, fellowship practices with the Gentiles being uh, eyewitnesses of, of his hypocrisy. And yet here you see uh, they, they must have found a way to harmonize and get back together and, and reconcile because he says... They, they kissed and made up with a holy kiss. They kissed and made up with a holy kiss, exactly. And uh, he says, uh, yeah, Paul writes some difficult things and a lot of people are going to twist and uh, pervert them. Um, and, and they still do today. I just thought of the... Um, you heard of the new... What is it? The new theory on Paul? No. It's the it, it's something about how when Paul says he is sent to the Gentiles, that's about social justice. Oh boy! And so they're saying that Paul wanted all people to be saved. Really, just meant that uh, the church should be all inclusive and not be racist. Well, the church should not be racist. Uh, God condemns racism, and we should too. Uh, but uh, that would be a, a prediction that came true about Peter here. That he said people like to twist Paul's letters. Yeah, and he says that there are matters that are hard to understand, and there's comfort for us in that. Uh, so as you're listening to this, and uh, you go to, you understand that as you read the Bible and you listen to the pastor preach, uh, as you go to Bible study, there are going to be things that you don't understand. That's fine. That's good. Don't force a meaning out of something you don't understand. You just uh, keep asking, you keep learning, you keep meditating on God's Word. You know, with Pastor Lightning and myself doing this, uh, you know, I've been in the ministry for 25 years, and every time I, I do the study or the other lessons that I uh, study or teach on or preach on, I'm always finding something new. There's always difficult things that are made easier the more and more you're in God's Word. I'm all set with Second uh, Peter now, so uh, you, you can uh, make make a pun on my name if you want. All right. Well, first, I wanted to let you know, listeners, that uh, Pastor Lightning and I were playing hurt today. You know that he hurt his elbow trying to outdrive me the other day. We were golfing. He didn't do it, but he was trying. And then I was working with his sons, who are really hard workers. Uh, taking some old pianos I have in my garage and turning them into piano bars and piano desks. And my fingers are all arthritic now because of it. And yet, I think we did just fine. Playing injured, we were, we were good. Didn't hurt our voices. No. Uh, next week, we're going to be jumping around. We're going to be studying Second and Third John, and then Jude, and then the prophet Nahum. Uh, last night, we finally... We finally received rain, uh, we ha- and so we had a big thunder and lightning storm that even woke me up at 2 a.m. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Lightning Storm. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.